Doug Wright is an award-winning playwright whose plays include I Am My Own Wife, for which he won a Tony Award and Pulitzer Prize, Posterity, and Quills, for which he won an Obie Award. He has written books for the Tony-nominated musical Grey Gardens, the Drama Desk nomination Hands on a Hard Body, The Little Mermaid, and War Paint. He adapted and directed August Strindberg's Creditors for the La Jolla Playhouse in 2009. Films include the screen adaptation of Quills, which won a Paul Selvin Award and WGA Award, and production rewrites for director Rob Marshall, Steven Spielberg, and others. He is president of the Dramatists Guild and on the board of the New York Theatre Workshop. He has taught or guest lectured at the Yale Drama School, Princeton University, Juilliard, and NYU. He lives in New York with his husband, singer-songwriter David Clement. Doug Wright, welcome to the creative process. Well, uh, thank you. It's, it's great to be able to chat. Uh, so we were just, uh, it's, it's interesting that at the time of the recording, um, we've not so much talk about just what's happening now in the world. It's the stuff of drama. Uh, there's the coronavirus going on, and I'm just thinking about the, the emotional ways people are reacting to this. Um, I, I guess I'm just wondering about your beginnings as a writer. Um, why you, you know, as you look ab around the world, you could write prose, you could, uh, you're a dramatist, you also write musicals and different things. Why did you choose that uh, path of writing? Oh, that's a wonderful question. I would say it's because I always loved uh, the art of making theater, mm -hmm. and that meant that sometimes I would act in plays as a student, other times I would direct them, sometimes I would paint scenery, and uh, I finally realized, uh, as I entered the professional world, that uh, in order to direct a play, someone had to give you a venue and money, <laughs> and in order to act in a play, uh, someone had to give you a role. <laughs> but the one area where you could uh, forge your own way without waiting for anyone else's permission or sanction was by writing. Mm -hmm. You can always sit down and write as long as you have a pencil and a blank page. And so when I thought of all the different avenues into the theater to work professionally, it felt like writing was the one that uh, best allowed me to control my own uh, destiny. Yes. And even though it's a, but you like the collaborative process of then having your words be, come to life as opposed to like, a, you know, a fixed, I know it's something that you've written about like copyright uh, for um, with your work uh, as the president of the Dramatists Guild of America, but you still like works that can change through interpretation. Yes, I do find that the theater is a living medium, mm -hmm. and writing itself is an extremely solitary act. So uh, the glorious thing about a play is once you've spent all that time in isolation, pouring your heart out onto the page, you have a small family waiting for you at the end of the journey to help you realize it, and that's the cast and the crew and the director and all the other artists who come together to, to give it life in three dimensions. So it mitigates, I think, the loneliness of a writer's life. And it also offers a kind of instant gratification because uh, if, if uh, there's a, 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 an amusing moment in the play, you hear laughter spontaneously, there's a moving moment in the play, uh, you hear the sound of muffled tears, and of course, if people have enjoyed it at the end of the evening, there's a hearty round of applause. So uh, it's it's gratifying in a way that I think poetry and prose uh, aren't necessarily because you can't sit in the room while your work is read and, and try and gauge the reaction of the viewer. That's something that you're not privy to. So the theater, if if you have a fragile ego like mine, offers instant gratification. And it's interesting, I think that it takes, um, you know, this other, I mean, I think that all kinds of writing and all kinds of art making take courage, but uh, the theater with and these collaborative mediums that happen in the moment that can't be, you know, uh, polished to like uh, a perfection and, and redone, you know, infinitely, that just that moment, uh, I don't know how you find that courage or is that thrill of maybe it could fail this time or maybe you know that the line won't land is that something that you you look forward to as well that makes it make you feel more alive in the process or 
I, yes, absolutely. I mean, playwriting is a, a very uh, contradictory act because on the one hand, I think it takes enormous arrogance to presume that an audience should listen to you for two and a half hours uninterrupted and pay money for the privilege. And on the other hand, in writing, uh, you're carving a piece of your heart out and putting it on a plate for the world to see and to judge in real time. So it's a combination, I think, of one of the most arrogant and vulnerable acts that you can commit. So uh, I think the, the fear of a line failing or a moment refusing to land or a play failing, there is a kind of insane adrenaline rush. Uh, so uh, that is, I guess, part of the excitement of it. It's not wholly positive, mm -hmm. but it's certainly real. Wow. And is there something also in the discovery po process after your, and then we'll, I want to speak about, of course, your uh, specific works, but is there something in the discovery process uh, through the collaboration or through the uh, reinterpretation of your works? For instance, I'm uh, ca calling you from Paris where, you know, your works, you traveled here and, you know, when they're interpreted by different actors or in different countries that you've discovered something new in that process. Oh, that's absolutely true. I, to have other great talents apply their formidable minds to your text and realize it is always gratifying uh, because it does uh, allow the play to live in a new context. I know that uh, my play, I Am My Own Wife, was recently performed by a, a, a trans actor and a group of trans designers, and it felt like a new, younger, bold generation claiming the play and making it their own. And that was grat gratifying. So uh, uh, the incredible uh, excitement of knowing that the text itself will be constant, but the interpretation of that text can vary according to the talents who've uh, decided to realize it. And that is a, it's a constant source of education uh, for a writer about his or her own work. I mean, we should uh, say, say for listeners who might not have seen uh, I Am My Own Wife, uh, the background of the real uh, person who inspired that. And I'm, you know, you brought up a trans uh, character in, or a trans actor interpreting um, the character or the real, of the real person. And I was wondering also how, um, since it was written, trans rights and you know, um, trans people have become much more um, visible and accepted. So how would you might you have approached it differently um it, if it written absolutely. today absolutely mm. yes uh, i am my own wife tells the story of a very uh, brave and idiosyncratic individual in uh what was formerly east germany who survived both the nazis and the uh the uh stasi uh living uh uh as a uh a member of the opposite gender. Uh, Charlotte von Malsdorf was uh, born a male, but uh, christened herself uh, newly and uh, uh, lived a large portion of her life identifying as female. And so uh, at the time I wrote the play 20 years ago, she was still something of an exotic. And yet by today's standards, as trans people gain in both visibility and political power, uh, happily, they are no longer anomalies. We, we see them with increasing frequency, and there's less shame associated with the phenomenon. Now there's a great deal of pride and advocacy, and so in many ways, uh, Charlotte's day has finally come. Uh, and previously, in productions of the play, she has uh, been embodied by uh, cis male actors, but increasingly, uh, trans actors are choosing to do the role, and that's deeply exciting to me because it suggests that the play has found new relevance in the culture. Uh, so that's just one example of how a play that you think is going to speak to a specific moment can, through reinterpretation, uh, speak uh, uh, into uh, uh, unanticipated and future moments as well. And then, uh, and ha what kind of dramatic choices have been made um, when it's been interpreted then in, in different countries or in different, those different groups that you've, you're speaking of? 
Oh, it's fascinating. I know uh, when we did the play in Eastern Europe, in places like uh, Poland and Romania, mm -hmm. uh, where there is still uh, uh, a degree of homophobia and to be gay is still uh, potentially criminal or, or dangerous, uh, people tended to almost ignore that aspect of Charlotta's life and instead saw the play as being one about political oppression because that was a phenomenon that they knew very well. And conversely, in uh, the more progressive cultures, I think like either France or England or the United States, uh, uh, it was uh, Charlotta's uh, sexuality that garnered the most attention. So it is fascinating to see not only how individuals interpret your text, but how cultures can as well. Uh, and so, in addition, when, when the trans community started to do the play, I did make some revisions to it because uh, there was a sense that, uh, because the play was 20 years old, uh, there were moments when I uh, looked at Charlotta from a kind of uh, distance and saw her uh, life as a trans person as uh, the life of uh, someone who was marginalized or the other. And it was in the interest of a community of trans artists that I make her more accessible and less remote. And so we altered some language in the play so that uh, she felt more immediate and more in control of her own identity. So uh, sometimes you do dip into a play and make changes so it can speak to the current moment. Yes, and so uh, it's interesting also, I mean, we're, we're conducting an interview and I also understand that uh, the, you got to know Charlotta through um, interviews or long conversations. Uh, just describe a little bit that process and how the uh, play evolved. Yes, I uh, first met Charlotta when I was traveling uh, in Germany, more or less on vacation. And a friend of mine who was a journalist in the region introduced me to her. And so I was so compelled by the story of her life that I immediately asked if I could uh, write a play about her. And she very graciously said yes. And I spent about uh, two years of my life uh, going back and forth between New York and Berlin and just spending long hours with a tiny tape recorder running. And she told me of... Uh, in her 65 years worth of adventures growing up in this uh, in this way. And uh, so uh, when I uh, finished that series of interviews, I had about 500 pages of transcript, and those transcript pages ultimately became uh, the template for the play. So it's not wholly found text. Mm -hmm. I did take some liberties in adapting it, yes. but uh, those interviews became my primary source. No, it's so interesting. And so I'm wondering what that editing process is. And it, it I mean, I imagine it varies from the different, some, you know, you've also done uh, plays and, uh, you know, musicals on other um, historic uh, characters, more well-known figures, perhaps, like the Marquis de Sade. Um, but what is that um, boiling down process of where you're taking uh, not, not always found material, but maybe things that have been said, and what are you looking for to pick those highlights, those dramatic moments? Well, it's interesting. I have adapted uh, the lives of, of individuals quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And hum human lives don't have narrative or thematic continuity. Mm -hmm. And one of the beautiful functions of art, I think, is to connote meaning in our lives when, in fact, there's only chaos mm -hmm. and random events. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so I think... Uh, being able to look at a life in Toto and find uh, either a body of themes that unite it in all of its disparities or uh, a, a single moment that crystallizes that life or embodies the life in, in one key episode, I think that becomes the dramatist's job. So mm -hmm. when you're adapting real life, you ultimately uh, uh, seize on those life events that... Uh, to a certain theme that you've identified. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you compress time or uh, compress characters to create greater narrative continuity. Uh, you uh, 
also, uh, I think, have to create transitions so that you're moving from highlight to highlight and not the sort of uh, 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 endless uh, uh, banality that sort of uh, binds most lives together. So uh, you do have to take uh, liberties with a life, but, but I do find that that is determined for me in large part by the notoriety of the person that I'm writing about. Mm -hmm. and, and in the case of the Marquis de Sade, I knew that anyone interested in the subject could go to the library and pick out between you know 12 and 15 truly reputable and brilliantly written biographies of Saab because he's extremely well documented in our culture. And in addition, I knew that other playwrights had uh, borrowed Saab from history and placed him in their own narratives, like Yukio Mishima in Madame de Saab or uh, Peter Weiss in his famous play Marat Saab. So I felt that in writing about Saab, I could take extravagant liberties because we have the truth on record. In writing about Charlotte von Malsdorf and I Am My Own Wife, I knew that for many, many audiences, the play would be their introduction to her for the very mm -hmm. first time. So the liberties I took in telling her story uh, were uh, very uh, constrained. I, try, I, I didn't make up any events. I didn't uh, put words in her mouth, per se. I really worked to be true to the factual content of her life in a way I might not if, if the subject had already achieved iconic or literary status. So I think how close you hewn to the truth and how far you depart from it in part depends upon the subject. And I don't know, this is a silly question, but if you were to adapt your own life as a, a play, or would it be a musical or, or what? I mean, tell us a little bit about your life, because you live now for many years in New York. Um, you began in, in Dallas. I don't know if you would ever take a pen to, to sculpt your life for the stage. <laughs> yeah, that would be a daunting task. But yes, I, I grew up in Dallas, Texas, and in many ways, Texas was a challenging uh, place for a young a gay person to uh, grow up, and yet Texas is a very mythic state, mm. a state with a good, good sense of humor, a state full of brilliant and amusing raconteurs who are magnificent storytellers. So while the politics of Texas made it at times a very difficult place for me to be, there is an innate theatricality about the state that I think I benefited from. But all that said, the moment I was old enough to leave and go to college, I went as far away as I could, and I went to Yale University on the East Coast, uh, which was very close to New York, and it gave me the opportunity to travel to New York and see world-class theater for the first time. And ultimately then, I went to New York City for graduate school at NYU and have stayed here ever since. So I uh, credit Texas for... Uh, forging my aesthetic identity, but I've uh, been a practicing playwright almost exclusively in New York City. And I, I traveled to Los Angeles quite a bit for work in film and television, uh, but uh, New York very much feels like my home. Yeah. And in terms of, uh, because also we've been talking about your work already, you know, uh, writing about, um, you know, in, from people from different regions, and I'm wondering about how the you know, total patterns, being an outsider, how that informs how you listen to people's storytelling. Um, I don't know, are, do, you, do you have other projects that are based on, um, I know your earlier plays were, some had been based um, on characters from Texas, and I know you've had some recent, um, a musical, sort of very recent, that had been based on characters there. Is it a place that you still like to, to write about, or just how that helped form your ear? I, I, I've written two plays about Texas, mm -hmm. and I think uh, it's a subject I might return to again and again, uh, but I also love immersing myself in, in cultures uh, where I'm not a part. I, I, I know my play, Marcel Duchamp, uh, uh, you know, he's of course a, a great Frenchman, and similarly the Marquis himself, you know, another great Frenchman, Charlotte was German. Uh, and so I do like writing about uh, cultures that aren't my own, because I think as artists, the fact that we are essentially outsiders looking in, it gives us occasionally 
a kind of insight into worlds that are not necessarily our own, because instead of being uh, in the thick of them, we're standing slightly outside looking in, and sometimes that gives you a certain uh, body of uh, uh, sensitivities and awarenesses that you otherwise might not have. And what do you find about writing about these um, characters, not just characters from history, but in writing about different historical periods? Are you finding more opportunities for drama there that, or that you can, I don't know, what do you like about writing about other periods? Sometimes I worry that it's just a failure of imagination and that I uh, don't have the expansive reach to uh, write wholly fictional stories. But I'm also a great fan of biographies and of history. And I think that whenever you're writing about history, you're really writing about things that are more personal. You have found in some historical figure a conflict or an obsession or a heartbreak uh, or a passion that matches one of your own. So you write about them almost as if they're a kind of surrogate for yourself. And... uh, uh, so you're ultimately uh, wearing them as a kind of disguise while you, to some degree, explore your own dark corners. And, and I think any good play, even if it's about a historical figure, uh, the audience comes and they, they regard it as almost a portrait, like I Am My Own Wife is a portrait about Charlotte von Malsdorf, or Quills is a portrait of the Marquis de Sade. But if it's an interesting and well-wrought play, at some point, that portrait that the audience is looking at transforms and becomes a mirror, and they see themselves. So uh, whether you're writing fictional plays or about historical subjects, I think you're always trying to push through and put your finger on some universal aspect of the human experience that unites us all. Yes, and I don't mean to, I mean, of course, you've written, um, you know, many plays that are set in uh, our contemporary uh, stories and that aren't, uh, you know, famous historical figures, but it's, uh, so you're very versatile that way. I didn't mean to focus on that, but I... Oh, no, no. uh, But I do think it's interesting, and I also thought um, that something about writing about historical periods allows us to... I don't know, because you have political correctness now. You have, um, in many ways, you have like advances in the way um, society works, but also maybe people don't always have as much license. Well, not everybody, but I still, we do still notice some throwbacks. But um, <laughs> yes, quite prominent ones. But yeah, because somehow everything being scrutinized or having, you know, the speed of communication now, or so many things can um, be anti-dramatic in a way, or you know, everything can happen so quickly, uh-huh. or, yeah. Absolutely. No, it's true, and it's a, it's a fascinating new era. I think as so many, certainly in the United States, so many of our politicians on the right have created such a toxic and divisive atmosphere that the creative left is bending over backwards to be inclusive, which I think is a wonderful impulse. But Mm -hmm. it's interesting now because there are certain plays of mine that I think are going to be experienced very differently now than they were when they were written because Mm -hmm. the the, uh, culture is so sensitized right now. Mm -hmm. I I think about Quills in particular, which is a very uh, deliberately provocative play about... uh, uh, the very nature of free speech and provocative content, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, it hasn't had a recent production in the United States, uh, and I wonder how it would be received in the current cultural moment, and it's so hard to know. And if it's a good play, I think it would weather uh, these uh, changes in cultural attitudes pretty well. If the truths I've illuminated in it are really lasting truths, it should still be as relevant now as it was 25 years ago, but that's not for me to say, that's for audiences to decide. So it's it's both a thrilling and an anxious time as a writer because uh, people are feeling rather raw uh, because uh, the culture has unexpectedly turned so cruel. So uh, I think all of us who are writers are reevaluating our work in in light of that. And so uh, it's it's, uh, daunting in some ways. Thank you.
I'm Lexi Kaiser, a 20-year-old blogger and poet studying English and journalism at St. Louis University. I'm currently working for the creative process as an associate podcast interviewer and producer. As a creative myself, I definitely connected to Mr. Wright when he was talking about what a thrilling and anxious time it is for writers due to the critical and often exclusive nature of our society. I feel that as a writer, I have a responsibility to create a safe space through carving out authentic parts of myself, sort of opening up vulnerability as a segue to community through words. That can be a frightening thing to do, but ultimately it's rewarding as it helps readers and audiences to feel like they aren't alone. On my blog, Life by Lexi, I talk about mental health and how that relates to my oftentimes scary experiences as a young woman. At first it was hard to press publish, but as time went on, I grew more confident in the liberation my voice gave me and the connections it made me with others who needed to hear my story. I'm so glad that Mr. Wright is acknowledging that being a writer isn't, by any means, a simple, stagnant thing. Rather, it's an evolutionary process for us and our readers. And, like he said, we're constantly reevaluating our work in light of that. I also thought it was interesting how Mr. Wright discussed his plays changing over time to mean different things to different people, specifically those in the trans community. One of my passion projects is poetry. I love being able to play with words in a more abstract way, and one of the reasons for that is that poetry is such a layered medium. What means one thing to me could mean something entirely different to someone else, or could even mean something different to me on a different day. It goes to show how intertwined our experiences are, and how similar we really are at our cores as humans. One line that talks about something that I thought only I had gone through could actually be super relatable to my audience. Writing, be it plays, poems, stories, it's all an incredible way to bring people together, but to celebrate and acknowledge our differences in the process. I, I don't really know how it works behind the scenes when you're making a play or a musical, Broadway or off-Broadway, then there's this is a kind of a committee process as well where you're checking <laughs> whether the sensitivities now or, I mean, I don't know what that's like. I mean, I've, have some of um, yeah, your um, plays gone through that process where things had to be taken or adjusted? Um, I think you always have rehearsal listen to your cast and mm -hmm. listen to them pretty avidly and if they have concerns or if, if they find a moment potentially offensive or troubling they bring it up and and then you talk about is it in service of the play's larger themes or is it excessive or unnecessary and you do try and 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 gauge those things with sensitivity and intelligence it's always a uh, challenging uh, process because plays on some level are meant to provoke and they're meant mm -hmm. to give voice to topics that we often avoid and they're meant to take us to uncomfortable and unexpected places emotionally. So uh, you want to be responsible in the ways in which you provoke or agitate an audience but you also don't want to be so sensitive to uh, their potential objections that you uh, censor yourself in any way. So it's always a balance, but having an open and healthy rapport with your collaborators I think is terribly important. And, and speaking about your collaborators, this is another aspect that's mysterious to me. When you're uh, um, working on a musical with a lyricist, with uh, someone writing the song, the music element of the songs, and when it, just tell me a little bit more of what that means when you're writing the book for a musical. Oh, it is highly collaborative. Mm -hmm. I do find that in most instances, I create the outline of the show mm -hmm. with the composer and the lyricist in the room, mm -hmm. and we all want to uh, get into the same headspace to realize the work. Because the challenging thing about musicals is even though three people are writing them, uh, uh, you want them to still be consistent in tone and vision. Mm -hmm. So I always find that's highly collaborative. And sometimes a, uh, a lyricist will say, please write a monologue that I can turn into a solo, or please write a scene that I can turn into a duet. So oftentimes you'll write quite a bit 
of raw material and then bequeath it to your lyricist and let them transform it into song. Mm -hmm. And so uh, writing the book to a musical can mean fully committing to a lot of writing that never sees the light of day because it gets reinvented so completely. Uh, and I also find in a situation like that, you want to honor every author's impulse, which is to say, if someone in the team comes in with a really uh, ex an idea that excites them and you see the passion in their eyes and the enthusiasm, even if you don't entirely understand uh, the idea as they describe it, you always want to give them license to go home and, and give it a try. I, I remember when I was working on uh, this musical, Grey Gardens, uh, again, based on uh, two real people, a mother and a daughter who lived in a rambling mansion filled with cats in a kind of perverse uh, isolation from the outside world. Uh, my, my lyricist, uh, Michael Corey, came in on fire one day and said, I want to write a brilliant act two number about the mother of the story, Big Edie, cooking corn on a hot plate. And I thought that was the most uh, uh, dead and un uninteresting idea that I'd heard. But something in me said, wait, Michael is excited, so let Michael take a chance at a song. And a few days later, he brought in this brilliant lyric to a song called Jerry Likes My Corn, which wasn't only a song about uh, cooking corn on a hot plate, but was a kind of opus about the very nature of motherhood that fit into the second act beautifully and for many people has become the signature song of the show. And if I had been uh, 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 negative and had inhibited Michael, he never would have given birth to that glorious lyric. So, so when you're collaborating, you want to create a kind of safe space where everyone can bring in an idea and, and voice it and uh, give birth to it before you summarily reject anything. And uh, that was a wonderful lesson. And that's interesting about leaving space for other people's imaginations to, to then blossom, right? And uh, because a lot of, so far we like, um, maybe a majority or a good majority of our write, participating writers have been novelists or people who fill every space except for the reader's imaginations but to talk a little bit more about leaving spaces so that you're not taking all the room so that they can take it from there oh that's a great question i i'll i'll, I'll contextualize it this way i'm often asked as someone who writes for both film and theater which medium I prefer. Mm -hmm. And I usually answer this way. I say, you know, you, you go to uh, see a film and there are 500 people sitting in the dark and they've got their giant sodas and their popcorn and they're hunched in the chair watching and the screen flickers to life and you see the words, you know, uh, Poland, 1932. And everyone in the audience immediately says, prove it. Uh, I want to see Polish cars. I want to see Polish architecture circa 1932. When the actors speak, I want to hear Polish accents. Mm -hmm. And the moment the movie fails in its verisimilitude, the audience rejects it. They, they mm -hmm. cease trusting it, and they exit the narrative, and you've lost them. And uh, conversely, in the theater, 500 people sitting in the dark on the edge of their seats see an utterly blank stage and a character cross uh, 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 in front of the curtain with a handwritten sign that says Poland 1932 and they all say great we're in Poland it's 1932 what's going to happen mm -hmm. and everyone upon request supplies you with their perception of Poland and you can start to tell your story so you're always as a theater artist enlisting the audience to finish the picture because it's such an overtly artificial medium you can't give them everything mm -hmm. so you have to enlist them as your co-conspirator to finish the telling of the story whereas in film the filmmakers are expected to provide the audience with absolutely everything and so the theater for me is uh, collaborative to the point that your final and most important collaborator is the audience itself and they too have to engage and apply their imagination to bring the work to fruition. 
And that, to me, is the most active kind of viewer that you can be when you're actually enlisted as a co-creator. And that's why the theater, to me, will always be somewhat more thrilling than the world of film. Yes, it is exci exciting, and exciting in that way that's, you know, uh, there are, are first, I, I believe, our first exposure to storytelling, even just like, you know, sitting uh, up in bed being read to by our parents or, you know, and, and, and that's, it's just one voice to another, it has that intimacy, and that's what I love about it. You, yeah. know, it, you know, it's strange because I think that, you know, younger generations, um, you know, yeah, they, especially younger generations, expect more in terms of special effects and all the things and the music and, and all these things, the eyes to be guided. But I, when I go to, of course, and sometimes those things are, are wonderful. Sometimes to me, they're a bit too much, right? There's no space for my imagination. But um, sometimes people criticize when they see a film which seems stagey, which is like a stage play. But I often find, because there's so, there's not enough dialogue, I, I find in, in many films that I feel like, I wish they just went a bit further so we got a bit more intimate. And I love it when there's, there's a stagey film. What, the, the the setting isn't special. It's just like people talking. Uh -huh. I don't know how, sure. how you feel, um, but they're criticized for some reason. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, <laughs> I like being able to get. And it's interesting too. Then I I think also sometimes to see. Um, plays uh, filmed as well because so you can sometimes get closer you know in terms of the facial expressions those kind of things um, uh, but so then as you yes because you you're like now I think you have a, a, a current film uh, project with Gideon Raff I know that's still in, in uh, um, production but uh, so what kind of things do you feel you have to constrain writerly elements that you can't uh, I, I guess there's some things that you just can't put in is that is that difficult or do you enjoy the constraints oh I think sometimes limitations in any art form are actually more liberating than they are confining mm -hmm. uh, sometimes to have limits on what you can say or express can actually be a good thing mm -hmm. uh, and if you're given too much free reign it can be paralyzing I know if, if someone says to me I want you to write a play about the nature of passion well mm -hmm. I find that really uh, stultifying and, and uh, I get stuck right away because that's such a huge amorphous subject and yet, if someone tells me, I want you to write a play for one elderly actor, one ingenue, a middle-aged man, and a ceramic dog that's blue. This I, sounds I very specific. Did someone recently give you this? <laughs> no, 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 no. But hypothetically speaking, yes. like, that's a play I'm automatically interested in because the limits start to suggest possibility. Yeah. So, so but sometimes I think the fewer things you have to work with, but the more specific they are, the richer the writing can be. I love those kind of games that I grew up playing. <laughs> I didn't have oh, many yeah. dolls. <laughs> we just told <laughs> stories to each other. But I think it's great. And it, sometimes it distresses me that it's not something, you know, in our digital age where everyone has a million devices. Um, uh -huh. they, should, they should just be forced to, like, well, maybe we're living through a period of it now where we're kind of all in sort of quarantine. <laughs> they should just be forced to go into a room and make up a story about three yeah, kind of people. Storytelling will come back. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. We won't be able to go out. I'm sorry. I don't want to think about. I don't want to think about a, a bleak future. And uh, and and. But it's 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 good. I think it's it's it is very thrilling. I think that that's there is something about. I mean. Who were who were the storytellers in your family? That I, I should be asking. I mean, oh my gosh, uh, my father was a wonderful raconteur mm -hmm. and was an innately theatrical character. He was a man of enormous humor mm -hmm. and passion, and also hyperbole. Mm -hmm. You couldn't always trust the stories that he told, but they were always extravagantly entertaining. Mm -hmm. And my my mother was highly literary, mm -hmm. and she would read to us all the time. And then oftentimes she would ask us to tell her stories, and uh, she would write those stories down on paper and then ask us to illustrate them and create our own picture books. So she was a great advocate of storytelling, mm -hmm. and I think that uh, for so many people it's how I came to understand the world. I think that's true of most of 
change the world and the people in it. So I think it's almost built into our DNA. Yeah, well, the world does need stories. I think, I mean, I'm I'm very happy. I mean, we actually have other problems, uh, of course, in the world with global warming and things. So we, we need other things as well. We have to solve those problems. But, um, yeah, as you say, stories is how we make sense of it. I don't... Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I, th- I think that, I, I know that there's been, because I, I do think a lot about education and, you know, what we should be, what kind of... Um, world we're giving the next generation and what's important and everything has been pushed towards STEM which I think is important but not everyone can express themselves that way um, uh-huh. and I also feel I mean this is just me editorializing that there's n- not enough jobs just in STEM because STEM well if you have enough technology it's just going to reduce the number of jobs so yeah. you know, if there is a need which for is yeah, but there's still, you know, it is interesting because um, uh, you worked also in, there is a kind of renaissance in, in television and, and film as well. And there's, there's a lot of jobs in those fields. I mean, um, in theater, uh, there's a lot of, it requires people. You can't. <laughs> yeah. No, it's true. And, and uh, the amount of opportunities in television uh, have just exploded with mm-hmm. all the streaming services and all the new networks and the growth of cable and, and online services. So uh, it's, it's both a blessing and a curse because so many young playwrights are leaving the theater and finding things like uh, uh, you know health insurance and pension plans out there in the world of television. And so it's a dangerous brain drain on the American theater. I hope that the, the two uh, uh, disciplines can stay symbiotic. And in terms of episodic writing, um, is there something that, um, I mean, I, I, I feel I mean, some of our participants are like showrunners and things. So uh, writing epi- episodically, does that, um, where you just keep on having to find a new problem, um, is that something that's less appealing for you? You like to have a, like, like one arc? Yeah, I, I hold episodic writers in such a Mm-hmm. because I think it's so challenging. Yeah. I love being able to, as you say, fulfill the single arc of a story, yeah. live with a certain set of characters for a year or two years or five years, however long it takes to write the play or the musical. Yeah. But the idea of working with the same cast of characters day in and day out over extended periods of time uh, and still having to be inventive and fresh and challenging I don't know how they do it. I think it's one of the hardest skills in the world to develop, and I'm in awe of the showrunners who do it brilliantly. Mm-hmm. So I've never been tempted to try it, but I have a greater res- a deal of respect for the people that do. Yeah, I, yeah, it does seem very daunting, as I know, and I know that some of their working days are like never yeah. ending. <laughs> That's sure. another stamina. <laughs> it's another kind of athlete, I think. Um, but. Only. But and uh, yeah, a kind of science to it, um, and, and so as they share with me, I mean, and I think it must be with all the arts, there is this underlying math. Yeah. Um, no, I think it's true. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how if you, how you chart it in terms of plotting and things, but um, there is this kind of math and music that I'm I'm fascinated in learning more about. Uh-huh. Um, so. Uh, and uh, to speak of some of your other adaptations, like, you know, classics, Little Mermaid, what... Oh, well, Little Mermaid was a joy uh-huh. to work on, uh, and the process of adaptation is a delicate one, because if you're dealing with a beloved property like that, which is a part of almost everyone's childhood in our mm-hmm. culture, you know that it's almost like adapting the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are people who know it uh, word for word and revere it. So you have to work very hard to preserve those things that make it special, but at the same time reinvent it enough so that it can be told on stage. And stage is obviously, as we've discussed, a markedly different medium than film. So uh, it was a delicate process. It's almost like doing surgery. But uh, we had Alan Menken on board as our composer because he'd worked on the film. He was kind of the conscience in the room. He knew with great acuity what had made the film so enduring, and whenever we strayed from that path, he was able to gently corral us and keep our eye on uh, the the storytelling elements that had made the tale 
so uh, beloved. So you do have to be careful and you have to really respect the source material. I think uh, if you're ever cavalier about source material or have the hubris to think, oh, I can make this better, I can improve upon it, uh, sometimes you run the risk of, of condescending to the material or uh, reinventing it in a way that is cavalier or that disregards what has made it enduring. And so with Mermaid, I had very, very real affection for the movie, which I thought was a touching and romantic and the story of a feisty outsider who wanted to transform her life. And uh, I also loved the score, even though it was an animated film, I thought it was one of the most vibrant and theatrical scores in recent memory. So I brought a lot of genuine affection to the project and very much wanted to do it. And I think it was uh, my, my genuine feeling for it that allowed me to, to work on it as long and as hard as we did, because we did the, uh, a production uh, initially in Denver, Colorado, then we did more work and brought it to Broadway. And then after Broadway, we reconceived it again for its European and Asian tours. So that musical became about six years of my life. But uh, it was a, a really rewarding and, and pretty joyous experience. And it's beautiful also because, as you said, it's it's something that, well, it can have audiences of all ages, but to work on something that is uh, so dear to young people and becomes um, one of their earliest um, uh, theatrical experiences, um, that's really special. It is, and it's a responsibility, too, mm -hmm. uh, because you do know that it's uh, going to be a primary theatrical experience for so many youngsters, and you want them to come back to the theater, and you want them to revere it, and you want it to be as meaningful in their lives as it has been in your own, and so it's, it's a lot of uh, uh, pressure on your shoulders, but uh, it was joyous to get to go to the uh, Lundfontein a few nights a week and see little girls dressed as Ariel streaming in the door every night and leaving happy. Uh, that, that was uh, something I'd never experienced as a writer because so many of my plays are about fairly adult subjects. So to be in a, a theater full of children was something I, I really adored. Yeah, that is beautiful. I was reading also, and I, I thought it was interesting that you have a, prof speaking of adaptations, that you have a professional maxim in terms of doing adaptations or scripts. Uh-huh. For, um, either you'll do adaptations of novels or rewrites of existing oh, yes. scripts. Yeah, but. Oh, yes, I do. Uh, I have, well, this sort of gets into my role at the Dramatist Guild. Uh, yes. One way that, uh, plays differ in the United States from screenplays or teleplays. Uh, in the theater in this country, the playwright always owns the copyright of their own work. Mm -hmm. So every play or musical that you write is your own intellectual property, which means that you can authorize productions, you can uh, approve casts and directors, uh, anyone who wants to make any changes in the text or the music has to secure your written permission or they're breaking the law, they're breaking the contract. Uh, so you have incredible control over the material that you produce and you really earn the name author mm -hmm. uh, because you make every decision about uh, the play's uh, presentation. In film and television, mm -hmm. when you're hired to write a script, that script becomes the property of the studio that commissioned it. So they can do anything with it at will without consulting you. They can fire you and put a new writer on the job. They can let the director make numerous changes in production. The actors can dispense with your dialogue and ad-lib lines, and you have no copyright protection whatsoever. So I place a very high premium on owning the copyright because I feel like uh, you're only a true writer if your every editorial decision is respected. Mm -hmm. And so if I want to tell uh, a story, I'm almost always going to try and tell it theatrically first. And when I take film jobs, I tend to take uh, adaptations of pre-existing material, whether they're novels or true stories or articles, because I know 
that I'll never truly own the material I create. So uh, my investment is very different. I want to be a skilled artist and a valued craftsman in film. I want my work to be respected, but I know that my relationship with that work will always be very finite and will end. So, uh, whereas with my plays, I'll, I'll own them forever. So uh, I tend to pre uh, show the theater preferential treatment when it comes to what I agree to do and what I, uh, I hope graciously turn down. Right. And it's not maybe also to do that you have a preference to moving um, stories forward through dialogue rather than, or that you feel most at home doing that, uh, than uh, moving, I guess, which is more common in, in film and television through images. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I appreciate both, but I think, you know, in the theater, you want to catch human behavior and commit it to the page and 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 speaking is just one mode of human behavior yeah. so dialogue in a play is incredibly important but so is gesture and so is uh, yeah. unspoken moments and all of that mm -hmm. but i i do like uh working with that degree of uh uh finesse it's almost like uh uh i i think less about Yes, and it's interesting for you to phrase it that way. And I was also, this isn't personal, I was looking a bit at the staging of your own um, marriage, wedding. I was just looking at some of the choices, excuse me, <laughs> because it's like a, a, it's a ceremony, it's like a play. And some of the um, writers, <laughs> yes. So it was interesting to speak, uh, because it's a, the, the writers that were, the, I guess the, some passages had been read from different writers and the music. So how did you choose that and why those? Oh, well, we were, when, when David and I got married, gay marriage was relatively new in our country. And, yeah. uh, there were no real templates for what a ceremony should be. Mm -hmm. And yeah. we, we decided to build the ceremony on the words of gay authors who wrote about love. So we looked at uh, Oscar Wilde and Patricia Highsmith and James Baldwin and uh, uh, all these remarkable gay writers that had sort of moved us and forged our own literary sensibilities and, and we used quotes from them instead of any religious text mm -hmm. so it felt like uh, the uh, wedding was on our own terms but you're right I think anyone who plans a wedding and writes a ceremony that's uh, I always think of that as theater for lay people mm -hmm. uh, anyone who's been married has produced at least one show uh, I think it's uh, the, the analogy between ritual and ceremony and, and theater is really adept and, and really real. Yeah, it seems like you, uh, your wedding was great fun, and I guess it was it by me, uh, by me, Mr. Shen. It just sounds like it was a great soundtrack to it, too. Uh, I, w I would have liked to have been there, but I didn't know you then. Oh, I appreciate that. No, we really loved it. We had a good time. Yeah, it's which is important. I think some people, when they have their, their well, it's great that you had been involved in so many uh, plays before, because I think so much pressure. Is, I, I often notice <laughs> that the brides, at least, <laughs> are so stressed out. No, it's so, true. It's really true. Yeah, but um, the, so that's um. It's lovely that you have some, uh, like an artistic wedding, and you can have a good time at it. Um, so, what are you, um, what are you working now on now? If we could discuss some of your current projects. Oh sure, I'm doing uh, a new play mm -hmm. that is scheduled to open in Chicago, mm -hmm. uh, and then hopefully in New York after that in January of 2001, and that is a play about uh, a famous. American humorist named Oscar Levant, who was very popular in the 1950s, and, and the play chronicles one of his more famous appearances on The Tonight Show, a popular late-night chat show in America during that time. And uh, he was a very uh, provocative figure. He said provocative things, and television audiences at the time adored him, but the censors didn't. So it's a 
uh, an examination of his life, and uh, I'm excited about it. It's called Goodnight Oscar. And then I've been working on a film for Paramount Studios, which is about a 1950s teen idol named Tab Hunter. Oh, and uh, Tab Hunter that. was uh, a handsome young man who was beloved by women all across the country, uh, but he was secretly gay, so he was a, a movie star who helped build our perceptions of what it meant to be masculine and a man and a desirable man, and yet all the while he was living a secret gay life, so it's about the kind of uh, hypocrisy in constructs of male identity in uh, American pop culture. So it's been great fun to work on, and uh, I'm about to do another draft of it. And finally, I have another musical that I'm writing with my husband, who's a singer and a songwriter, and it's a musical about the notorious 70s student group, The Weather Underground, which uh, was a radical group that protested the Vietnam War. Oh, that's cool. that's quite a, a range of of uh, different subjects. And you you, you write Crazy, them right? yes, and you you write them concurrently. I mean, how do you you know is it one in the morning, one in the afternoon? How does that work? <laughs> I tend to block out a few weeks at a time for projects. So even when I have multiple projects brewing, I'll try and do you know two or three straight weeks on one, and then two or three on another. And I, I try and, and break them up that way because I do find it too schizophrenic to try and uh, uh, work on each one uh, all during the course of a single uh, work day. That's, uh, I, 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 I can't focus that way. And is there like a tuning fork to bring you back for each one, you know, like you're going back to the first pages or a key scene that gets you back into tuning back into those characters and their voices? That's exactly right. I find it usually takes me a full day to make the shift. I'm just reading and rereading what I've, I've completed to date mm-hmm. and falling back into the world of the play. It always feels a little bit like uh, uh, diving into a new body of water and I have to get my bearings. So it takes me a, a day of fussing around with periods and semicolons so I can really start to rewrite in earnest. And you said that at the beginnings you were, had considered, and obviously you have some experience of acting, uh, you, you, you put on the voices. As, I mean, I don't know if that helps you with, the, um, with writing dialogue. I mean, what is in terms of your process, in terms of hearing how it's um, embodying it before it goes to production? Oh, that's a great question. I guess if it's a, uh, I wrote a play about Henrik Ibsen, Yes. And I, I read everything I could that he'd written. Similarly, when I was writing about Dussaud, I, I, I read everything I could. Now, I didn't read it in the original French. I read mm-hmm. the translations by Richard Sieber, mm-hmm. but I still tried to ape Dussaud's style as best I could. And then when I say I'm writing a movie about Tab Hunter, I watch his movies endlessly. I read his autobiography. I read interviews with him from the period, and I try and embed his voice in my own mind as I'm working. And then uh, whenever I've finished a new scene, I usually summon my husband into the room, and I say, read this with me. Let's read it aloud so I can hear the cadences of the speech and and uh, determine if it feels accurate or truthful. And I think every writer has their own internal sense of rhythm, and they gauge their dialogue and their sentences against that rhythm, and I certainly do that too. Well, you've certainly given us so much in the way of, of writing and, you know, for younger and older audiences, and like, I mean, even just the, your most recent projects, it's such a, a span of subjects. So I guess, you know, as we're um, coming to the end of the interview, uh, big questions, which we talk, talked a, a, bit, uh, a little bit about, I mean, we, this is an educational initiative, so as you think about education, the future, and the kind of world we're leaving the next generation, what do you feel is the importance of the arts and how might we better incorporate um, the humanities in our current systems and improve those oh, current systems? A, I think it's a, a beautiful and necessary question. And I do think that the study of 
art an artist remains essential because when you look at history uh, uh, political systems rise and fall and theologies even come and go but one thing every culture has reliably left behind is its art we don't have the government of ancient Greece or Mesopotamia or or uh, the Ming Dynasty. Uh, the, the theology changes with the fashion, but the arts that we've inherited from those civilizations still inform us about what it means to be human and to live in the world. So in a way, art becomes a kind of a permanent record of human experience in the way that no other phenomenon can. And, and that's why we have to continue to pay attention to it at our peril. And in terms of improving the study of art and integrating it even more richly into our lives, I do think we have to examine the canon as we perceive it, because the canon has been controlled uh, largely by uh, uh, white men, white American and European men, who have determined what is worthy of study and what is not. And I think we have to look to find the voices of women and marginalized people, because sometimes it's the most disenfranchised people in the culture that are the most articulate about it and most aware of the innate injustice in certain social systems. So I think we really have to examine our canon and broaden and deepen it to include more voices. And similarly, not only will people stand to gain from that, but it will also let other people who don't look or sound like us know that their voices are a welcome and necessary part of the overall historical record, too. So it signals inclusion in a really important way. Well, that's a, yeah, that's a, a beautiful message. And in terms of your own personal canon, voices that um, you think more people should know about or perhaps, uh, you know, more uh, well-known voices, who are some of those in your personal canon? Oh, my gosh, that's a fantastic question. I mean, I do, the authors that have most inspired me uh, largely tend to be uh, women writers like Flannery O'Connor and Patricia Highsmith and Shirley Jackson and Lillian Hellman. I mean, Lillian Hellman is as rigorous and as skilled a formalist as Arthur Miller ever was. And and uh, uh, similarly, uh, there are artists now, Jackie Sybil Drury, an African-American writer here in the States who's producing really revolutionary work, and Jeremy Harris, whose slave play just caused huge consternation on Broadway in the most delicious ways. I think he's, he's a brilliant new voice. And uh, uh, I look back to you know, voices from other cultures, too, like reading uh, Yukio Mishima and being amazed by him. Uh, and, and just film, you know, it's such a, a rich medium to look at the work of, uh, you know, Almodovar and uh, people from cultures that aren't necessarily my own. Uh, so uh, it's a pretty broad swath. Uh, but like everyone, I'm, I'm uh, a, a product of the canon, and the canon is something we have to really re-examine. Oh, yes. I think that that's really important, and I love um, your selection, your own personal canon, many um, brave voices, and to which we add your own. So, um, oh, thank you. No, thank you, uh, Doug Wright, for your stories of outsiders and rebellious characters, strong women and pioneers, and your adaptations and readings between the lines to present well-known figures from new perspectives. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Lexi Kaiser. Assignment editor is Sorella Lark. Digital media coordinator is Camille Montalino. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas and Adelis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition, traveling to leading universities or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info.
creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info.